Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Well, Pastor Andy and the family are on their annual autumn colors trip. Do you guys have an annual autumn colors trip? Man, their posts have been great. But, you know, it's beautiful to experience the changing of the season, as I mentioned earlier. The time of year as the nights begin cooling down and the mornings are nice and crisp, but we still get that hot, warm day, the glow of the, of the, of the autumn days are enjoyable. And as we continue here in our sermon, I invite you to join me in uh, maybe something a little different here at the beginning of our message as we invite the Holy Spirit to open us and to guide us. We can hear the sounds of the LeMay traffic, but let's let that kind of fade to the background as we begin to notice the sounds of the garden emerging around us. I invite you to imagine the sights and the smells that may accompany the sounds that we're beginning to hear. Folks at home, even for you, I invite you to join us in this, this moment. If there's any distractions around, perhaps other noises or devices or activities you're doing while you listen, I invite you to set those aside for just a moment as we allow God to open our hearts. We can hear the birds singing. the sound of the trees and grass, the wind chimes. We hear the sound of bees happily gathering pollen and nectar from the flowers. Can you feel the warmth of the morning sun on your face? even as the cool breeze blows and chills your skin. I know many of you keep a garden, so just in this moment, I'd invite you to set aside the frustrations of weeds and failed crops, and just imagine your garden, feeling the soil under your hands, the smell of the damp earth and the vegetation as it grows. Maybe you can imagine the sound of your trowel as you work digging, transplanting, moving, caring for the plants in your garden. Remember the surprise, the excitement, as you notice the beginning bud of a green bean on the stem, or the tiny bulb of a tomato as it begins to grow. 
We hear the bees, and some of you, this may be not a relaxing sound. <laughs> but I am a beekeeper. I keep bees. And every autumn, there's an excitement to this time of year because it means honey harvest. You know, but the work of carefully tending a hive is more than about the harvest, making sure that the bees are cared for, they're safe, they have water. At this time of year, we want to check the hive to make sure that they have plenty of pollen and honey stored up to last them through the long winter to come. But we also do get to enjoy the abundance of their labor in the honey they produce. I could spend the entire morning talking about bees and beekeeping. If you'd like to, I'll chat with you after. But it's sufficient to say that the chores that we engage in when we work in the garden or when we tend to our bees is forming us. It shapes us. It really causes us to slow down a bit, right? I mean, sure, they're chores, and they're, they're chores that we have to take care of, but they're a little bit different than what we experience in culture, aren't they? They force us to take time away from the typical mix of work and play in order to tend to the bountiful creation that we've been asked to care for. And sure, we get the benefit of fresh honey and ripe tomatoes, but the longer I've kept bees, the more I've come to value the unhurried rhythm of it, as much or even more than the honey we get to enjoy around the table. And I know for some of you, this little exercise here at the beginning has been not very relaxing, and I get that. We're all kind of different. But thanks for indulging me. Um, as someone who's deeply impacted and deeply connects with God through my senses, it felt like the perfect way to start, to start the morning. But either way, the point I'm trying to make is this. God invites us into rest. He invites us into rhythms and activities that run counter to the culture in which we live. God invites us into rest, rhythms and activities that are counter to the culture in which we live. Because culture shapes us, right? Our culture shapes us. We know this, and sometimes we're made acutely aware of just how much it has shaped us when we find ourselves chasing after things that are not bringing us solace or comfort. And we kind of have that awakening moment, like, what am I doing? Why am I going after this so hard? Is it really that important? Our culture pushes us to produce, produce, produce. We are what we make and how much we can bring, right? It pushes us to earn more and to spend more. It encourages us or pushes us to compare our production and our earning and our spending to our neighbors, to those around us. It pushes us to hoard up our free time, keeping it to ourselves and rarely sacrificing it for others. It pushes us to be completely self-sufficient, to not rely on the help or the generosity of others. 
Our culture teaches us to be suspect of those who are not like us, to be guarded, to guard ourselves from those around us, to carefully pick who we listen to and who we shut out. It fools us into thinking that we have to have it all together and that we should always be happy and that we should always be strong and confident and that we should always be okay. And there's nothing wrong with being happy and confident and strong and okay. But at the cost of ignoring when things are not okay, that's, that's a challenge. Our culture tends to lull us into thinking that our primary satisfaction comes from the consumption of popular entertainment rather than using our own creative imaginations and talents to delight and to fill our time making and doing. Our culture is also generally opposed to faith because faith tends to move us in opposing directions than cultures flow. Especially when that faith is applied through regularly attending church. Our culture loves spirituality, of course. You know, everyone's spiritual. But who still attends church? Nobody goes to church anymore, right? After all, we can be more spiritual without church. Perhaps you could attend church from time to time, but don't let it get in the way of the things that are really the most important to you, right? Because let's be honest, church can be really lame. And you know what? It is. It it can be. It has been. It would be naive to deny the harm that has been done through the church, either globally or during seasons of history, or maybe to you personally, the time that the church has harmed you. You know, but this generally has happened when the church, when we have taken our eyes off the beauty of the Word of God, both in the written word of scripture, but also in the exemplified life of Jesus. When we've taken our lives off of that and focused too much at working our culture and faith back into something new or relevant or attractive. You know, church begins to fail when we begin to judge and to defend and to guard and to segregate or generally do any of the stuff that we do that doesn't look or sound or smell or taste like what Jesus did. You know, Pastor Andy talks about this frequently, right? You may remember a series that he preached about two years ago called Why Church Matters. Um, It was really good. And it matters because when done right, When done the way Jesus showed us, it looks and sounds and smells and tastes a lot like working in a garden. It brings rest and restoration. It brings new rhythms. Sure, it also brings weeds 
and hard work and stones and hard soil. It takes sweat and effort. But if you're here this morning or if you're joining us online, it's because something within you has encouraged you to live, at least in this moment, counter to the culture around us. You desire something that brings rest and redemption and comfort and hope, and so do I. You know, this week, my friend Sherrod Yadav posted something that I'd like to share with us. As a matter of fact, um, his post really shaped me this week. It's one of those rare moments where something on social media was super inspiring. <laughs> but it actually lent some voice to the time that we're spending together. My friend Sherrod and his twin brother, Samir, uh, were guys I knew in college. They smoked, they went to punk rock concerts, they skateboarded, just like I did. <laughs> and they pushed back against tradition. They pushed back against authority when it was just authority for authority's sake. They pushed back against all that was false and oppressive. But they were also two of the smartest, most passionate, most on-fire followers of Christ I ever knew. Their Bibles were worn ragged from study. And generally, you could find Sheridan Samir in conversation with someone else or a group of people talking about all the things that Jesus was doing. You know, 20 years later, they're still committed followers of Christ doing his work, but also at times doing it in a bit of a disruptive way. That's good. My friend Sherrod, who posted this, is a pastor of a church in Meridian, Idaho. In the post I'm gonna share, I've actually toned his language down a little bit. <laughs> um, and in some cases, it may still be a little spicier than you're used to on a Sunday morning in church, but I think his sentiments will be clear. Jay, let's put this on the screen. I know you won't be able to read this. I'll read the text, but this is what he says. As I try to remember, as I try to remember why I do this for a living, here's a handful of reasons my dear friends, to consider joining a church. Number one, to join a church is to commit to a social circle that you don't get to choose. And it can, therefore, show you whether your spirituality is real or not. Number two, joining a church is a way of practicing among a small group of people over a significant period of time what you'd like the world to be like. Number three, to join a church is to live in rebellion against the neoliberal and capitalist forces which are brainwashing you into making you cons your consumer desire the center of your world, reducing all of your experiences of the world, including the people in it, into instruments and resources. 
That's the kind of thing he would say all the time. Number four, joining a church is to organize your life around a time to confess your limitations, culpability, and imperfections together with other people so that you get used to receiving divine forgiveness and hope in response to your honesty. Number five, joining a church is to resist all traditional loyalties to state, party, culture, family, or affinity in an act of loyalty to a group that transcends all natural categories. Number six, joining a church organizes your financial priorities around supporting an inclusive community of vulnerable people that you have committed to live life with. Number seven, to join a church is to cultivate an environment unlike your home, work, or play, where your life is not measured according to any other purpose or goal than to discover and enjoy your own humanity. Number eight, joining a church is a way to maintain healthy skepticism about human knowledge and capacities, and instead to pursue the mystery of our divine faith. Number nine, to join a church is to cultivate an imagination of how your unique gifts and talents, your creative potential can be offered on purpose for love instead of money. And finally, number 10, joining a church is a life lesson on how to deal with difficult people without retaliating, dehumanizing, or running away, all in a desperate hope to not become just like them. You know, honestly, I've read through that probably a dozen times in the last few days since he posted it, and it still stirs something inside. Why? Because I agree with it. And it makes me not feel so alone. Church, I think it helps us because we agree with it. And it helps us here at Emmaus Road not to feel so alone. It helps remind us that we're not crazy for wanting to pursue and to seek out things that are counter to our culture. Even if that means living in ways that are counter to popular church culture, when it doesn't reflect what we read in Scripture or what we see in the life of Christ. So I know this has been a bit of a long introduction before getting to our Scripture passage. Um, but as you can see here, the things that we've been discovering, or hopefully what you'll see, is the things we've been discovering here tie right in to the message that we'll hear from Scripture. As a matter of fact, this passage came first, and then these other ideas and experiences happened in the week, and it just seemed to fall altogether. So I invite you to join me in the reading of our Scripture. It'll be in Hebrews chapter 4. If you brought your Bible, you can turn there, turn, go on your devices, or it'll be on the screens for you. 
Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 12. It says, Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render account. Since then, we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As we reflect on that scripture, actually we're going to go through it again. We're going to just read it one more time. And as we do so, I'd invite you to be looking for the two, there's two themes that are in this passage. I think they'll be pretty clear. But of course, anytime we study scripture, what we need to do is also remember the context in which it was written. Who wrote it? Who was reading it? What they were intending? The author of Hebrews, we actually don't know by name, but we know he was a contemporary of the disciples, one of those who were a part of the first century church and what was happening through the work of the disciples through the Holy Spirit as the church was built. We do know he was a Jew. He was one of the Jews who were a, a Christ follower, he believed that Jesus was the Messiah of God and that he was now the revealed word of Christ. We also know that he was writing to other Jews. That's why it's called Hebrews. And he was writing to Jews who were also followers of Christ. And of course, to these Hebrews, these Jews who were hearing these words, things would pop out. There, there, there's certain buzzwords here that would just be red flags, like the Word of God. The Word of God would immediately make them think of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't have the compiled Bible that we have today. They had the Torah, the five books of the Bible, the first five. But they would also recognize that as the prophecies said, the Messiah was the revealed word of God. So in addition to the Torah, everything that Christ did and taught and demonstrated was the revealed word of God. They would also recognize in the verses prior to this section that the invitation is to rest. And what's provided here are ways in which you could find rest. So let's go through those verses one more time, starting in verse 12, and let's be looking for those themes. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him, no creature is hidden, 
but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. So let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in the in that passage, we hear two things. We hear a warning and we hear an invitation. And you can really look at this verse from either perspective, but it really kind of helps form and shape how you kind of hear it. If you're looking at it from the warning's perspective, you might miss the invitation altogether. If you just hear the invitation, you might miss the things that lead up to it. So let's look at this section of scripture from those two perspectives. First, from the warning. The language that is used here in those first couple of verses can be kind of harsh, especially to a defensive heart. Words like piercing, judging, naked, render account. You may find yourself on guard by these ideas. And when your guard goes up, you might miss the invitation that's to come. But that's what culture does, right? Our culture has taught us to be defensive, to have our defenses up, to protect ourselves, to be on guard, to be wary, to be suspect, to have zero tolerance for others when they do or say things that offend us or call us out. Even when the offense comes from someone who really means the best for us and loves us. And we can't deny or ignore the fact that at times our heart goes defensive. It's a natural reaction. It's a reaction to what happens when we are in a spot or when we're called out. But we need to recognize that those defenses, that posture, it pushes us to resist the vulnerability that's described here at all costs. It pushes us to hide our selfish ambitions and to ignore them or to try to forget that they're even happening. It kind of pushes us to keep that inner dialogue that happens to ourselves and to not admit it to anyone else. How often does your inner dialogue sound something like this? If my friends or family knew what was really going on inside my head, they would probably think I was a monster. <laughs> they would think I'm crazy. Or they would think I'm a terrible person. You know, we're barely honest with ourselves most of the time. But how could we dare to be honest with others or with God? Because what would they say after all? You know, would they shake their head in displeasure and happily send us to the punishment or the misery that we deserve? 
That doesn't sound like God. It doesn't sound like the God we see described as in Jesus. Unfortunately, it does sometimes sound like the way we've been treated in church or the way we've been treated by people we trusted. You know, though our spirits may be confronted at times, the invitation is to learn to see and to taste and experience the freedom that comes from living an open life. Because the truth is, God sees us anyway. That's what this section of Scripture is saying. And that when we see the Word, we see the truth through the Word of Christ, whether the written or the lived life of Jesus, it lays bare our intentions becomes like a, like a road map that we can like hold our intentions over the Word of God and we can see whether they've gone off path or not. So let's not allow our defensiveness to distract us from the invitation. So let's look at this passage of Scripture now from the perspective of the invitation. As I said a moment ago, to live an open life, an honest life with yourself and with others and with God to realize just how extremely liberating an open life can be. Our inner dialogue has turned our shortcomings and our failures into condemnation, but God wants us to know that nothing that we've ever thought or done can scandalize him. As a matter of fact, our scripture in, in verse 16 reminds us of that, that Jesus, our high priest, knows everything we've ever experienced. Not only does God see the intentions of our heart, but he understands them because he lived them in Christ. We're reminded once again that Jesus lived it all. And scripture gives us the big moments of Jesus' life, right? The speeches, the miracles, the accounts. But you know what Scripture doesn't necessarily give us is all the in-between moments where life is really lived. Like, what would it have been like to be with Jesus 24-7? Perhaps the clearest example we have of seeing Christ's humanity is in the moments in the garden before his sacrifice on the cross. It was a sleepless night of mental anguish and agony as Jesus wrestled with the realization of what was to come. It was a night of urgent prayers, of restlessness, a night of tears. It was a night, uh, if you remember from the scripture, when the disciples were with Jesus in the garden, but they just couldn't stay awake. They kept falling asleep. And Jesus would go off and pray and wrestle, and he'd come back, and he'd find the disciples asleep. And he'd say, why can't you stay with me? And they'd wake up, oh, okay, we'll do it. And then they fall asleep again. The frustration that my friends aren't even here for me. We can identify with that, can't we?
God knows what we face because he faced it too. And not only does he understand it, but he empathizes. Have you ever had the opportunity to encourage a friend or a child who had failed at something? I think about the times my kids failed at something, especially when they were little, trying to throw the ball perfectly or to put the toy together perfectly, and it was just so frustrating when it wouldn't work. And you know, I didn't feel like I wanted to say, well, that's what you deserve. <laughs> I could, it broke my heart, you know? It breaks our heart when our friends or our family are going through something difficult. And isn't it true that when faced with the failure of someone else near to us, our first inclination is not to say, well, that's what you get. That's what you deserve. Our first inclination is to feel compassion. Because it reminds us of the times that we felt just like that. You know, the times that we failed and started over, the times that we dusted off our defeat and sought reconciliation, perhaps we had to repair something that we had done wrong, some harm or some physical damage. Perhaps we actually had to fix something because we messed up. But we move forward, wiser and stronger from the experience. That's the invitation that we have before us today. And it's a needed invitation because, let's be honest, things are broken. Our society, our culture, there are moments of evil and brokenness around us. There are moments in our own lives when we face that same kind of corruption. Have you noticed the proliferation of like doorbell cameras, security cameras these days? It makes for fun social media viewing, but you know, it's, it's on purpose. It's a reason because packages do get stolen from our doorstep, right? But in the face of corruption or evil, what's, what should our response be? to put up a camera so that we can catch the culprit and turn him in and see justice served. What are we to do when our thoughts and our intentions and our actions fall far from the peace, love, hope, and compassion that Christ demonstrated for us? Shall we keep those thoughts and actions hidden for fear of ridicule and punishment as our culture says we deserve? Or should we lay them open before a God who understands and has compassion? What do we do when our thoughts turn towards self-preservation? Like it's not good for us to lay it open before God. I hope you're hearing the invitation to see that God is good and that his compassion and his mercy is available for us in our time of need. As you read scripture and as you reflect on the life of Jesus, there will be times in which you're made aware of the ways that you've sinned or fallen short. And when that happens, may we not be ashamed, may, may we not be shamed into hiding our failure 
from ourselves or from God and from others. But may we live openly before God who understands and empathizes. And to what end? Why should we do this? Again, reminding ourselves of the invitation that God invites us into rest, rhythms and activities that run counter to the culture in which we live. May we commit ourselves to this invitation and may we commit our church to that invitation as well, where we can live it out supported and in fellowship with others. Will there be challenges and difficulty? Yeah, of course, there will be. Just as our gardens tend to be full of weeds and stones and hard soil. But God has committed to us one thing. He's committed to tend the soil of our souls because his invitation is to enter into his rest. Just as we were reminded earlier after our corporate prayer, I would say again, hear this good news. Because God loves us, we lack for nothing. Because God forgives us, we have everything we need. Because God surrounds us with sisters and brothers, we do not journey alone. Amen. Let's join together in prayer. Lord, We're grateful for this moment. This time, Lord, where we can hear your invitation to come boldly before your throne where mercy and grace is offered for us in our time of help, in our time of need. Church, I invite you to Join me in a prayer activity. We call this the prayer of two hands. Invite you to find a comfortable posture and have your two hands open in your lap, palms open, face up. And as we pray, I'd like you to imagine in one of your hands something that has been laid bare for you this morning. Maybe it's an object, but more likely it's an attitude, an action, whether it's something that just happened once or whether it's something that's recurring in your life. Something that's been laid bare by the Lord this morning and his Invitation is to turn that over, to release it, to let it go. In your other hand, I'd like you to imagine the thing that the Lord is offering in replacement of that which you're turning over. That empty space that's left behind as you release that thing that's been laid bare, what is God offering to put in its place? In your, two whole, in your two hands, you now hold something that God would like you to turn over to him.
and something that he would like to bring you in its place. As a sign of release and surrender, that hand that's holding the thing that you'd like to release, just turn that hand over and let that, that thing fall to the ground. And draw your two hands together, holding that which the Lord has offered you in replacement. God, we receive your grace and your mercy. We receive your help, and we thank you for it. And Lord, now as we approach your table to receive communion, God, we receive the miracle of Christ and his death and resurrection. And that Christ living in us through this bread and through this juice and the Holy Spirit living in our bodies enables us to have moments like this where you call to mind something to be released and you replace it with something good. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.